Thank you, and welcome to Modern Investing with SidePocket, featuring Dr. Rufus Rankin, our head of research at SidePocket, and myself, Arthur Pavelko. We heard discuss the latest in new age investment methods, but before we get started, just a quick disclaimer, that the content we're discussing on our channel should not be understood or construed as financial advice. Regardless of anything in the contrary, nothing available on or through this channel should be understood as a recommendation to buy or sell securities. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Rankin. How are you today? Hey, thanks. Doing well. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm definitely excited for our chat. I saw your notes and you know, looking forward to discussing some tactical asset allocation. Yeah, so I thought for, you know, some of these discussions, we could go through, you know, instead of talking about current events, we could pick a paper that's really important to what SidePocket is offering in terms of tactical asset allocation, active management that's, you know, backed by significant research, not just guesswork. And so that, you know, listeners, users, and People who are curious about what SidePocket is doing can get a feel and an understanding for some of the key concepts and theories and strategies that underpin what SidePocket's all about. Sounds great. So I want to start with, so today for this, for this session, I want to start with the paper that I think got, got me interested in this field. I was already working in managed futures. So that incorporates a lot of systematic investing, a lot of price-based or technical types of trading, as well as probably the most important or most commonly used strategy in managed futures, which is trend following. And that's the paper I'm referring to is a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation that was written by Mebane Faber and first published in 2006. So I was already in the field, already knew a lot of these concepts. But I wasn't that familiar with the idea of tactical asset allocation in particular. And, and you know, tactical asset, asset allocation to me is more of an investing approach than a trading approach. So kind of the audience is, is a little bit different and the techniques are similar, but also they have their differences. So, you know, this was the paper that I think first got me interested in tactical asset allocation back in 2006. I think Mebane, another paper by Mebane also is, is one of the first papers that drew SidePocket's CEO and found, co-founder Daniel into the space as well. So we have a lot of thanks to, to say to Meb. And uh, next time I have dinner with him, I, I'll be sure to to buy him a drink. But anyway, as yeah, it's been a while thanks to, to COVID. But anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about tonight is to walk through this paper that introduced me, but also so many other people to this concept of tactical asset allocation. Um, <clears throat> so I figure we could kind of jump right in and you can drive questions, comments, and, and make sure that I clarify things that, that aren't necessarily obvious. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Let's roll. So again, the paper we're discussing is a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation written by Mebane Faber for, and first published back in 2006. And so I'm going to be referring to the February of 2013 update because he updated this paper a few times over the years. And the most recent one that I 
found while looking around was the February of 2013 update. And so I guess as, as a way of overview, this is a very simple model and a very simple portfolio. And it was first published with kind of the target of attempting to achieve equity-like returns, but with volatility and drawdowns that look more like those that we've seen from bonds over the last over the last 30 40 years Mm -hmm. so it's not you know this wasn't presented as a strategy to generate you know a multi you know like a three a sharp ratio of three or four or really high annual compound returns of 20 percent or more it was really looking at the problems that come with come from static asset allocation and to propose a simple but powerful way to deal with those problems so the one thing about the 20 two things about the 2013 version are we have a nice kind of out of sample period so he updates the results of the model from 2008 through 2012 which are completely out of sample and also, he looks at tweaking some parameters of the basic model to try and boost returns in a few different ways. And the upshot is the model held up well out of sample. You know, after we had the big crisis of 2008, the model held up well in the subsequent years. And since then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so much the, this basic model has struggled, but the performance has been lackluster while a simple 60-40 allocation has done just wonderfully well. Up until this year, in 2022, a 60-40 allocation is still down in the high teens year to date because both equities and bonds are down considerably this year. Mm-hmm. And the most basic version of this model proposed all the way back in 06 is actually up several percent year to date, like three to five percent year to date. So that's pretty powerful. It's been a very tough year for investors. And this model, which, you know, was was thought up or published in 2006 based on models that had been in the public domain for decades or longer without any extra bells and whistles is still performing exactly as designed so that's that's a really powerful takeaway so that's the overview so the background oh wait are there any questions there does that all make sense so far no it, it makes complete sense no questions at this moment. Please proceed. Oh, cool. So, so Meb paints a very compelling picture at the beginning of this paper. He gives background on what real, that is net of inflation, returns have been for basic asset classes for approximately 110 years. And so he walks through the real returns of cash, that is dollars, yen, et cetera, right? Currency, the real return of currencies. And he looks at at basically the best case, the worst case, the middle case, and leaves out a few catastrophic cases like, you know, Germany post the war, things like that. But basically he's giving you kind of a general realistic range of what these different asset classes have done net of inflation from 1900 through 2011. And so he looks at cash 
And the worst case scenario, leaving out a few catastrophic outliers, is negative 4.10% annualized. And these are all annual annualized rates of return, net of inflation, or net of the estimate of inflation through time. And the best case scenario is negative 2.3% annualized, and that's the US dollar. So just putting all of your earnings in cash and keeping your savings in cash has destroyed the value of your of your money, of your wealth through time. So then next he looks at short-term bonds and those real returns are slightly better. So the worst case scenario, and these are on a a country basis, I I should clarify. The worst case was negative 3.63%. So the worst country over that time period had annualized real rate of return of about 3.63%, and that's negative. And the best case scenario was annualized real returns of two and a quarter percent per year. And then he goes on and looks at long-term bonds, slightly better again. The worst case is about negative 2% per year. The best case is about 3% per year. And then looking at the stocks, the stock markets of various countries over that time period, the worst case is 2% per year net of inflation. And the best case is about 7.5% per year net of inflation. So, you know, I should pause here and mention that at our, and this will become dated, but I I think it's worth pointing out because the quote is timeless. You know, on our panel in Sonoma for the Future of Finance Forum last week, our esteemed panelist, panelist Mac McQuown said, look, if if you don't take risk, you're not going to get anywhere. And I think he was almost too gentle with that because when you look at just kind of putting your, your money under the mattress, you're going to go backwards because this, this feature or this, this problem of inflation, which appears to be getting worse as we're talking right now, erodes the value of that money that you hide under your mattress. So unless you're taking risk and that really means investing in markets like stock markets. You're, you you really don't have any chance of outpacing inflation. And so I thought that was an important point to, to mention. So lesson one or point one that he makes with this paper is that if you want to beat inflation, you have a bit of a chance with bonds, but your best chance is with stocks, investing in stocks. Now, there's a there, there's an issue there, and the issue is this: like the only way to beat inflation is to invest in stocks, at least in this paper. But each stock market study has had a drawdown of at least seventy five percent. Now, the math of that works out to if you lose seventy five percent, you need to make something like three hundred percent to get back to even. So another way to look at that is you'd have to compound at 10% for 15 years to get back to that. And we already know that's hard. The best case real return for stocks was 7.3% per year. Okay. So that's really hard to do that 10% per year, especially for 15 years. So we need to have a plan for drawdowns and for assets that aren't performing well 
or we can be stuck in assets that have no returns or negative returns, or we can be exposed to these really large drawdowns that happen occasionally. So that's the background that MEB presents. We need to, if we want to beat inflation, we need to invest in risky assets. The problem with risky assets and part and arguably the reason why they give mark or provide inflation beating returns is because they're risky. So that's the, the background before we get into the meat of the paper. <clears throat> I, I thought we were already kind of in the meat because this is painting a, a, a real picture <clears throat> of, of the value of, of tactical. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about everybody right now that's been overexposed to this drawdown. I mean, you know, you're, t- you're taking one step forward and, and two steps back in, in these scenarios. That's right. That's right. And so I, I think I mentioned in a previous discussion, if, if somebody is what you might call a perpetual investor, like a university endowment where you're investing for ever, you you kind of have a different relationship with bear markets and drawdowns potentially than an individual who's trying to prepare for retirement, sending someone to college, buying a house, you know, for these events that are going to happen at some definite period in the next, say, five to 40 years, right? So you Mm kind of know, looking at the history of markets, that you're going to have big drawdowns in risk in risky asset classes. You don't know when they're going to happen, but they're they're usually going to happen every within every you know ten to thirty years, right? So the rest of this paper attempts to deal with that, so that you have a plan and a process Project. where you can harvest the returns from these risky asset classes, but reduce the potential for these for being exposed to these very large and painful drawdowns that can take a very long time to recover from. So it gives three steps in this paper. I mean, I do encourage everybody listening to go download it. It's on SSRN and read through it as well. Maybe listen to this, read it, and then listen again. And hopefully this will be helpful if, if it's a tough paper. But step number one is to go global. So a lot of investors just use a 60-40 allocation. They have 60% in large cap U.S. stocks and 40% in the United States government and corporate bonds. And so that's the standard portfolio for a lot of investors. So step number one in this paper is let's move beyond 60-40. Let's add foreign developed stocks with the BI. EFI index. And let's also add commodities, things like metals, both precious and industrial, things like food, things like oil. And then let's add real estate in the form of real estate investment trusts. So we go from a two asset portfolio, which is often used as a benchmark for many investors of 60, 40 US stocks and US bonds, to we have US stocks. We use the S&P 500. We have foreign developed stocks with the EFI index. We have US 10-year government bonds. We have a commodity index and we have a real estate investment trust index. So we've gone from two assets to five assets. And if we look at those five assets with all the available history, we see they all have maximum drawdowns of 50 to 70, that's five zero to seven zero percent. So 
all of these markets, the 10-year government bonds, not quite that bad, but the other risky assets have all had big drawdowns at 50, or maximum drawdowns of 50 to 70% in their lifetime. And they all have sharp ratios, that is annualized annualized returns, excess returns, excuse me, sorry, I had a little brain gap there. So they have annualized excess returns divided by their annualized volatilities on the order of 0.2 to 0.3. And that's pretty standard. Most risky assets you look at have sharp ratios in that range of 0.2 to 0.3, usually over long time horizons. So what we're doing here is we're introducing alternative potential sources of return just by broadening the portfolio beyond 60-40. And that is step one. Step two is manage your risk. It's not double or triple your sharp ratio. It's not boost your return. It's manage your risk. And so in in step two, Med walks through kind of a history of, of technical trading, and he, he references people like Jeremy Siegel and some popular, and he looks at a popular rule which basically uses the 200 day simple moving average as a way to decide whether you're going to be long or flat an equity index. And so, flat just means you take your money out of, of that asset and put it in some kind of safe haven instrument such as cash. And so the the next step he takes is he said, well, you know, most investors don't want to look at the market and calculate the simple moving averages for whatever they're investing in every business day. You know, people are busy. They have jobs. They have families. They have to play golf or whatever their hobbies are. So he converts that to a 10-month simple moving average, which covers about the same amount of time, but it takes the it really reduces the amount of time you have to spend looking at the markets and looking at your portfolio. So he walks through some great history, which I I definitely recommend people read through, and boils that down into a very simple pair of rules, a buy rule and a sell rule. The buy rule says, says, excuse me, buy when the monthly price is greater than the 10-month simple moving average of the price. And the sell rule says the opposite. Sell and go to cash when the monthly price is below the 10-month simple moving average. And you only do this, you only apply these rules on the last day of each month. So it's June 29th. If I was running this strategy, I would wait till the last day, last trading day of this month when markets are open. And near the end of the day, the trading day, I look at the last available price of each asset. For example, the SPY ETF, which tracks the S&P 500 index. And I look at the 10-month average of monthly closing prices. And if that price is above, I will buy or stay long if I already have a position. And if it's below... I'll say, okay, time to get out. So I'll sell and go to cash. Or if I'm already in cash, I'll just stay in cash. So it's very simple. And that's it. You know, you the last trading day or business day of the month, you look at your portfolio, you look at the average 10-month average closing prices, and you know exactly what to do. There's no wiggle room. You know exactly what to do. And you only have to do it one day a month. 
Now, what that, enough. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple, but the results are very powerful. So the first asset he applies this to in the paper is just the S&P 500 total return index. That means it includes dividends. And he has data for that index from 1901 through 2012. And so the return, the annual return stays exactly the same. It's It, it, it goes up very, very slightly. So let's say it's 10% annualized versus 9% for just a buy and hold. The volatility though, drops from about 18% annualized to 12% annualized. And the maximum drawdown drops from 83% down to 50, 50%. And the terminal wealth is the amount of money you end up with if you put, if you start with $100 in 1901 and Look at how much it's worth in, at the end of 2012. The terminal wealth is $5.2 million versus $2.1 million. So that's great. It does some really good things, but there's a there's a another side to the coin. The, the reason not every, I think the main reason everybody isn't doing this is because it under it tends to underperform during bull markets. Mm-hmm. So if you have like a roaring bull market like we've had up until this year, these kinds of strategies don't necessarily do as well. Uh, unless they won't unless they the won't. price <clears throat> sorry, unless the price continues to out, uh, to grow higher than the 10 month simple moving average, right? Well, sure, sure. And it's it's the the underperformance is more obvious when you look at a more of a portfolio. So if you just compare using this, applying this strategy to a single asset versus that single bench a- asset, the difference won't be that big. But, you know, and, and I always tell my students, my grad students, look, I don't, I don't care who, I don't care what kind of money you're managing, what strategy you're running or who your clients are. Everybody compares you to the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. So this becomes more challenging when you're running a diversified multi-asset portfolio, like in the five assets, five asset approach versus say just stocks or a 60-40 when they're both ripping and other assets aren't doing as well. But that may be an explanation for why not everybody is doing this. And, you know, that's something that academics look for very hard is when they find a strategy that works in quotes, you really, you know, academics really want to find a reason for why. And so, you know, this is a potential explanation for why this continues to work is because it doesn't work all the time. And there are periods where you look kind of, you look, you look and maybe you look and, or maybe feel kind of stupid using this strategy when anyone with just a lot of basic buy and hold approaches is beating you. Right. So that makes it hard. That may be part of a reason why not everybody does it or why it continues to work. Mm -hmm. So that's step two is manage your risk. Use a very simple price-based model or set or pair or set of rules. That's the same for all assets. So this isn't, you know, a 10 month SMA or simple moving average for equities. 
a nine month for commodities and a three month for bonds or something like that. That's a, a key point here is we are using one model and applying it to all assets in the same fashion. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome, especially like even though it may not, you know, it may, may outperform the buy and hold, you're still just by doing this, you know, reducing volatility and drawdown by almost half. And, and, that, and that's important because again, it always gives you, you always have access to your in, investments and, and minimizing again, that exposure to the, to the drawdowns. Cause we never know how long those are going to last. Right. You really don't. And you know, we've had a lot, we've had a lost decade in equities here. We've had lost periods in other equity markets as well. So I don't know if that's going to happen again, but I, I feel better having a plan or a model that kind of knows what to do in advance of those situations happening. So at least I have other potential ways to beat inflation that just eats away at the value of your investments. Um, mm-hmm. So the next step, step three is global tactical asset allocation. So we have our portfolio of five global assets, stocks, international stocks, US bonds, commodities, and real estate. We have our simple model. Just we're using the 10 month simple moving average for each of those. And it just, you just apply it to each individual asset. So you do it for your stocks, you do it for your international stocks, et cetera. So the models don't talk to each other. And this is five assets and it's equal weight. So you get 20% for each of those five assets. And the performance from, he, he presents the performance from 1973 through 2012. And so he has those five assets. He has a buy and hold that just rebalances occasionally. And then he has the GTAA model, the global tactical asset allocation model, which we've just been walking through. And again, it's really similar. It's funny. It's really similar to the, just the S&P 500 example where the buy and hold portfolio makes just shy of 10%, 9.92% annualized in this example. And the GTAA model makes a little over 10%, 10.48%. That's not a difference that anyone would say is statistically significant. It's probably not even economically significant. But you have a you have the same return that you would have had just running a buy and hold strategy. Now, mm-hmm. it gets a lot more interesting when you look at it from the risk side. And that is really the focus here with this kind of approach is let's make sure we have exposure to assets that give us the opportunity for upside, the opportunity to keep up with and beat inflation. But let's see if we can build a strategy that minimizes the risk that comes from investing in those risky assets. And so when we look at the volatility, the volatility for buy and hold is a little bit over 10% annualized. And the GTAA is about 30% less. It's 7% annualized. So that's a big reduction in volatility. The sharp ratio is a little bit higher, which isn't necessarily that important. But finally, the maximum drawdown of the buy and hold portfolio is 46%. That's very close to 50. And the maximum drawdown of this very simple five asset, sing- simple model is 
less than 10%, 9.54% was the worst maximum drawdown. And that does include, you know, 2008, which was a very tough time. So Meb does a lot of good work in this paper, especially in these updates, to make sure that what he is presenting is robust. That is, it's not a fluke. And it's not just something that, you know, was data mined and, you know, the 10 month simple moving average worked really well for one set of data, right? So he tries very hard to make sure that what he's presenting here is robust and he does a good job of that. So he looks at a smaller period, the 2006 through 2012 period, and finds very similar results. The buy and hold portfolio returns about 4%. GTAA does materially better, it returns 6%. So that is a, a potentially significant outperformance. And the volatility story and the risk story is even better. The volatility of buy and hold during that shorter period is almost 15, 1.5%. And the GTAA has volatility of only 7%, so about half that. So that's that's a market reduction in volatility during a pretty volatile time. And the drawdown doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really impressive. I mean, like considering how much less risk there you create. Again, if someone was doing this manually, I, I'm guessing it would take tops 30 minutes to an hour a, a month to process the trades. You know, you're you're definitely getting way better performance considering because you're you're almost having at least 30 percent to 50 percent less risk just making this one adjustment in how you're managing. It's definitely a material impact. It's a huge impact, especially if you're risk averse and care more about just maintaining the purchasing power of your portfolio through time rather mm-hmm. than eking out every last bit of return. But here's the here's the challenge. Let's let's round up. Let's say it takes two or three hours a month to do this. You've got to be there. You, you know, the last trading day of every month. You have to be there. You have to spend this three hours. And I can tell you, it's it's hard to do. A lot of people think they can do it, and then they don't. You know, Because you get into a nice bull market, and you have months go by where you go through this work of you know calculating the averages, looking at the, the prices of the different assets in your portfolio, and there's nothing to do. So you do this work, and you're like, ah, everything's fine. And then you stop doing it. And you just look at markets, oh, markets are still up, I'm fine. And then you get out of that discipline. And then, you know, you, you, you get a signal to go flat on one or more assets and, and you miss it. And so it's really like there's this, it's a lot of people think discipline only shows up like to do hard stuff. Like, you know, I, I, I sometimes see people talking about you have to be disciplined. Like Dave Goggins, right? The the Navy SEAL guy who runs like a thousand miles every morning. You know, you, you, you could like yeah. chop his arm off and he'd be like, that doesn't hurt. I'm going to run like super amazing discipline and motivation. But you also need to be disciplined to do really boring stuff. Okay. And it, 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 it it's potentially just as hard because there's no real feedback it's like you do a couple hours work and the model says don't do anything so there is this kind of behavioral gap that even though this model is so simple and only takes a couple hours a month it's still in real life i'm not putting down and i'm not putting people down in real life it's it's harder than it looks okay 
So that's the great time to plug, you know, services, apps. Of course, you know, this is a, a side pocket discussion. So yeah. you, you can you can use side pocket and it will do all of this work for you. And you can follow along at home. You can run the model in an Excel sheet, a Google sheet, or in something fancier, but you can do it, but and the pressure is off. So you have you know, you can't be on your computer the last trading day of a month. Guess what? The side pocket app will do it all for you. You can run your model later, check back in and say, oh yeah, it did it. I didn't have to do anything. So that's a very, like when you, when you have these boring things, there, there's like a coding book called automate the boarding, boring stuff, excuse me, with Python, you know, mm-hmm. you can just kind of stop worrying about it. Let, let the machine take care of it for you. And then, you know, you're a lot more likely to get the benefits of this approach by automating it. Yeah. Cause like. You know, what's, what's simple to do is, is also simple not to do. And well, I could said. Totally, well said. I could totally see myself in that position of, you know, if, if it's on me to do it. And I'm like, well, look, it, you know, it's, it's that time of the month comes and I'm looking at the market. Nice bull run. Doesn't show signs of slowing even when I just look at the charts. And I, I don't want to pull out. You know, I want to keep riding it. And then, of course, you know, I'm exposing my, you know, the next time I'm going to rebalance isn't for another month. So much can happen then if I skip this this rebalancing, you know, when, when, you know, activity that's scheduled, and I could to- totally see how that could shoot myself in the foot by by skipping the the disciplined approach. And of course, you know, don't have to worry about doing it myself if it's automated, just like anything else. I mean, even savings. How many people do recurring withdrawals into their savings account just to? automate the discipline of savings because if we left left our own devices you know we'll you know we'll, we'll skip the 20 bucks this week and and spend it on an extra beer or coffee or whatever you know and give ourselves yep. leeway so that's, exactly. that's awesome yeah so that's that's part three is apply this simple model to global assets get better diversification and get really good risk management as well and so you know one of the robustness tests Meb uses is he, he wants to make sure it's not a fluke in that when he wrote this paper or when he updated it, that that 10-month simple moving average was, was special somehow. Because if it's special, that means it's probably just an artifact of the data and mm-hmm. you have no reason to expect it's going to work in the future. So he looks at three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months as well. And all of the results are very, very similar. So it does seem like the 9, 10, 11 month range is a little bit better. It's kind of like pumped. If you look at, you know, whatever metric you use to evaluate these models, it's kind of like a hump shape where, you know, the highest part of the hump is, you know, in the 9, 10 or 11 month area. But it's not like 10 month does great. Everything else is flat to negative, right? So that's that's what you want to look for, and he does walk through that in the paper, which is very important. So you can, so that's like a key thing to do to make sure that you can really have confidence that this is something that is likely to keep working. I feel like everyone's always looking for a sure thing, a sure strategy, a simple way. I know I was when I was first getting into investing and trying my own hand at it. Why do you think this information is just so like not out there? And, and, and you know, I have my own uh, assumptions of why, but I'd like to hear your take on that, you know, 
why isn't this like mainstream and and you know more more people know about this i i don't i don't know i can only speculate but you know i think warren buffett said something like to the effect of value investing or you know his approach is it's kind of like it's an an inoculation it either either read about it and you say oh that's for me or you don't and you know I'm not sure if that's, you know, I saw this and I was like, oh, this makes all the sense in the world. You know, I read this paper in 2006, right? And it's, you know, it's still just, yeah, of course, this is a great way to invest, right? But I really don't know. I think, I think a lot of people like stories. So Mm -hmm. they want to be the person that, you know, reads about or meets Elon Musk and says, oh, this, this is a person with you know, vision, fire, genius, whatever, I'm going to invest in this company, Tesla. I feel like a lot of investors prefer a story like that mm-hmm. and just, you know, follow a, an admittedly very simple, arguably not very smart rule and just kind of, you know, follow these simple rules and check in once a month. That, that's not very exciting or sexy or it's hard for me to be like, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I knew Musk when he was at PayPal and, you know, followed his career and jumped right in when he started Tesla. And, you know, like it, it's just, right. you know, if I'm at a party or showing up for friends, you know, oh, I've got this really simple model and I, you know, spend an hour a week and, and it works really well for me. Oh, so you make a lot more money. You, you beat the market. Nah, not really. I don't lose as much when the market tanks on average, but I don't like, you know, make a lot more money than the market. I don't know. It's may- maybe people just don't don't feel like that's sexy or exciting. I don't know. I really don't know. But the the fact is, it it certainly does seem to work very very well and has for over a century and continues to. And so that's a good lead into you know why does this work and you know, Meb gives a pretty strong potential answer to that question. Why does this work? And there's this idea or concept of volatility clustering. And that is, you know, the basic way to look at volatility clustering, clustering, excuse me, is that in, in risky assets, you have periods of time where returns are not very volatile. And you have periods of time where returns are volatile. And they usually usually find large returns kind of clumped together or clustered together. So you don't just have, you know, 20 very quiet days or 22 very quiet days and then one really large outsized day and then 22 more quiet days. You usually have like some kind of clustering or clumping together of larger outsized returns. And so what these simple what the simple SMA rule does is it does a fair not perfect, not even great, but fair job of filtering out times when you tend to have high volatility and normal volatility in the assets that you're investing in. So while volatility does not have a sign that is you know it's a measure of of dispersion so it doesn't have a sign it's not positive or negative there is a little bit 
there does tend to be a bit of a clustering of negative returns as well. So Meb puts together this great table. It's figure 18.18 in the paper, volatility cluster, clustering across various asset classes. And he looks at stocks, foreign stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, and looks at basically the annualized return, the annualized volatility, and the percent of time each of these assets is above or below their 10-month simple moving average. So I'll just walk through one. I'm not going to read the whole table because it's long, but I'll walk through one. And this is really great to look at because all the numbers are very, very similar to each other. So just looking at U.S. stocks from 1973 through 2012, the market, the stock market, the U.S. stock market is above its 10-month simple simple moving average about 73% of the time. And this is all months, monthly returns. The annualized return during that period, during those months, when when the market is above its 10-month simple moving average, is 13.5%. And the volatility is, again, about 13.5%. So 70, a little over 70% of the time, the market's above its 10-month simple moving average. And the annualized monthly return during those periods is a little over 13, 1-3%. And the volatility is a little over 13%. Now, the complement of that is the market is below its 10-month simple moving average about 27% of the time in this sample. The annualized return is about 5.5%. So, and the volatility is about 20 to 0%. So, Two-thirds of the time, the stock market's above its simple moving average, and the return and volatility are in the low teens of about 13%. And a little less than a third of the time, the market's below its simple moving average, and the annualized return is less than 5.5%, and the volatility is 20%. So much, much lower returns during this period, and much, much higher volatility with this. So with this simple rule, you're kind of sorting or filtering the state of the market into two states, high volatility or or, or bear market, low volatility bull market. And it does a pretty good job of filtering out those returns. And each of the other assets, foreign stocks, about 70, 30, bonds, 75, 25%, that is 75% above simple moving average. 25% below commodities about 65 35 uh, real estate 73 27 almost exactly the same as stocks and so on average he averages these up 71% of the time these assets are above their simple moving average average returns of 13% average balls of 14% uh, and then below Below the moving average, average annualized return of 4.7%, average volatility of about 20%. So this is a very simple yet robust and powerful way to kind of have exposure to these risky assets when the odds are in your favor and to move out and avoid the markets when the odds are against you of having strong returns 
and when they're in favor of having very high volatility and potentially lower returns. He repeats it for U.S. stocks from 1901 through 2008. It's almost exactly the same. 70% of the time, S&P was above its simple moving average, 30% below. And then the returns and volatility were both 14 and change. And then for below the simple moving average, the annualized return was less than 4%. And the volatility was almost 25%. So it's a very powerful rule. And that's a good reason to believe, okay, here's why this works. And here's why it might continue to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty impressive. And in, in the, the table, just a backtrack question where it's shows how much percent of the time the pricing was, you know, over the 10 months moving average and below. Could you just touch on the significance of that information, what that really communicates? Well, I mean, you may have said it, it may have gone over my head, but if you could just touch on that one more time. Sure. You know, I'm fond of saying that, you know, markets go up on and go up in an escalator and come down in an elevator. So, you know, bull markets tend to be relatively long, you know, years, right? Many years. And then bear markets tend to be like, you know, people say, uh-oh, you know, and, and you know, you have lots of selling. And so bear markets and drawdowns tend to be shorter, right? So that's why I get the analogy, markets tend to go up in an escalator, kind of slow and smoothly going up and nice and calm. And then I really ought to say it's more like, you know, Splash Mountain and Disney World, where they go down in Splash Mountain, where there's a lot of yelling, <laughs> you get down really fast, and you're all wet at the bottom. And it's kind of scary. But that's kind of what this <laughs> captures is that, you know, most of the time, about two, th- you know, two thirds to 75% of the time, most risky assets, at least over over the last century or so, have been in upward trends or bull markets. You know, 25% of the time to maybe a third of the time, they've been in, you know, choppy, sideways, downward trending or bear market, Mm -hmm. uh, bear market situation. So that kind of reflects that. And it's Mm -hmm. really encouraging because, you know, the the return differences between bull market and bear market as measured by this really simple rule are startling. You know, it's, you know, stocks 13.5% versus 5.5%. Foreign stocks 13.5% versus 5.25%. Bonds, bonds actually doesn't really change in this sample, which is really interesting. Commodities, however, 14% versus 4%. Uh, real estate, 16% versus zero. So th- this, th- it's a very simple rule, but you're identifying a, a market feature where you have much better odds of having a positive return and relatively low volatility and one right. may drive the other. And then about a third of the time, you should be out of that asset. So like historically speaking, you should you know, if if your main concern is beating inflation while trying to preserve, if your main concern is is preserving the kind of purchasing power of your investments of your investment portfolio, and but reducing risk, so you don't have you have less likelihood of having one of these you know terrible 
painful drawdowns of 30 to 50%. You should be in these risky assets about 70% of the time and in cash about a third of the time. So that that's pretty great because it means, you know, you, Arthur, don't have to watch, you know, your investing app. You know, you don't have to watch your 401k every minute of every day. You can be relatively slow and i i mean in terms of your behavior not in your intelligence sorry that sounded kind of bad thanks for clarifying but like you know once a month you can you know check in on the markets either personally or through an app or a service and you through relatively you know small behavioral change you can really increase your odds of reducing your risk, reducing your exposure to these, these, you know, really painful bear markets. That's it. That's, and that's a huge benefit for such a small adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. There's another figure I would point out. It's a, it's a paired histogram of yearly returns for the S&P 500 and the timing model applied to the S&P 500 from 1900 through 2012. So these are annual returns. And there's, you know, the timing model just isn't there for some of the return, the annual returns that the, you know, buy and hold has. The, and that's the, the left tail, so to speak, of negative 20 to negative 30% negative 30 to negative 40%, negative 40 to negative 50% greater than 50%. Buy and hold has several observations in those buckets, but the worst one for timing is negative 20 to negative 30%. And it looks like there's only one or two occurrences and then it's just the buy and hold. So that's another way to look at it is you're just kind of cutting off your exposure to that left tail of really bad annual returns. So not you may get hit with bad days, weeks, months, even quarters, but the big, you know, the big pull, the big bull pulls is where most of the money gets made. And then you have a simple model or perhaps a more advanced model, you can reduce your exposure to those really tough years. And it's, you know, you're automatically doing what, you know, successful investing is about buying low and selling high. You're buying yeah. right, right, right before the momentum takes you a little bit further, and you're selling before the momentum takes you too far down. Sure. And, or yeah. as as Ricardo said, and gosh, I think it was the 1800s. He said, you know, let your profits run and and cut your losses short. So that's mm-hmm. really what this model does across your portfolio. And so yes, that leads into kind of the last part of the paper where in this version, Meb talks about extensions. And I love this because, you know, SidePocket doesn't offer a single model. SidePocket offers a menu of different models with different asset classes, different risk targets, different goals. And some of these ideas are kind of like, okay, well, what other side pockets might you have, right? So I, I, I really like that. But Meb goes through a few things, adding more asset classes, because, you know, a lot of people want to have more than five instruments in their portfolio, right? They want, mm-hmm. so he talks about how you can add more assets or even different equity tilts. He talks about alternative cash management. So when I have a, a flat signal or a sell signal, say in stocks, do I want to go to cash or do I want to look around for sources of yield that are relatively safe as measured, you know, and you can use the 10 month simple moving average 
model here to say, okay, should I be long this asset or not? For example, 10-year U.S. government bonds, if they're still in an uptrend, why not get a little extra yield that way, right? Uh, and then finally, alternative weighting strategies where, you know, maybe instead of just having an equal weight across all of the assets that we have buy or long signals for, maybe there should be another rule that, that picks, you know, the three best performers that are above their simple moving average or the six. And so that would be induce, introducing the concept of relative momentum. So all of this has been based on what we've talked about in the past and called sometimes trend or time series momentum. But this last feature he talks about is you can introduce a relative momentum overlay, so to speak, where you just invest each month in the three or six assets in this example that have had the highest performance relative to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we're kind of running towards the end of our time here, but before we wrap up this enlightening discussion with with the side pocket tip on, of mm-hmm. course, side pocket being the only app on the market offering automated systematic investing, I wanted to just touch on really quick on a couple of questions we had from our audience. Yeah, David, David, yeah. Sorry, yeah. please go ahead. You know, no, sure, sure, sure. So basically, the first question is what. What do I do if I wasn't investing tactically and now I'm down 20%? How should I switch to side pocket? Or if he's down a lot, should he wait? Great question. What are your thoughts, Dr. Rankin? Sure. I, you know, I think that's a, that's a hard one. You have to figure out what's right for you. And I do have to kind of point out that this isn't, this is not uh, you and I, Arthur, are not providing investment advice. So we can only speak in generalities, of course, um, and, and we're not we're not providing investment advice or suggestions or, or anything like that. But that, that that's really hard. You have kind of two options, and that is one: you kind of stick with it until you're above your watermark, so to speak, and then you make a move. Or you know, I I think the more rational thing is when you know. You become when you when you read through an idea or find an idea or, or encounter an idea. When you say to yourself, "Wow, this is what I need to be doing," you should probably go ahead at least with part of of your portfolio and get started. You know, there's this saying: the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and the second best time is today. Right. So, figure out a way to at least get started because what's happening now. You know, we have a bear market. No, no one really knows if it'll keep going or if, you know, we've hit the bottom and we're going to come back, you know. So this is really a test of whatever investment philosophy or theory or, or belief you had going into the market. So if you have like a strong belief or, or, or view of the markets, there's not much need. And I, I harp on this constantly arthur so you're probably rolling your eyes at me right now but if if (laughs) if you're down say 15 to 25 percent and you're thinking about making a move you're probably upset you probably are really worried and i would suggest to you to the to to anyone to to figure out a way to get relaxed calm cool-headed before you make a big decision Okay, and that may be talking with an advisor, talking with a you know a friend or something like that. But just make sure 
you're you're using your higher levels of capacities of reason before you make a decision. So it's a long way of saying it probably makes sense to get started with tactical while you're motivated to. And unfortunately, that's usually, you know, people tend to often come to tactical when there's a bear market happening, but really just make sure you pause and you think things through rationally. But in a lot of cases, it does make sense to at least get started to some extent with a tactical approach. Got it. Thank you for that. And one more question here before we wrap up. David asked, does dollar cost averaging work? Yeah, I think it does. You know, markets are volatile. And the the trick with, with dollar cost averaging or DCA is to not get shaken out. So, you know, and this, this also refers back to the, the previous question. You know, so your your portfolio is down 20%. When, when are you planning to use your portfolio? Like when are the, the assets in the portfolio going to be converted into, you know, other things or experiences or, or what have you? Because if it's, if it's next year, you're probably in a portfolio that's too risky. You know, if, if you need to use this money to buy a house in six months or a year or something like that, then you have kind of a risk level mismatch your your portfolio has too too large of an exposure to very highly risky assets or assets that are too risky if it's 30 years then you excuse me probably don't need to do anything or you can you know take your time so to speak so dollar cost averaging does seem to work quite well because it it, it, it it kind of like the, the premise is you can't time the market, but markets are volatile. So through time, you have the opportunity to buy at high and low levels, but you don't really know at the time. You don't know through time if you're buying at a higher low level. But if you buy in small amounts at a, at a frequent interval, you're very likely because of this volatility, because of these periodic bear markets, to have a lower average purchase price than if you just bought a lump sum on a random day. And so that can be very powerful if, again, your horizon is very long. So if you have some arbitrarily long time horizon for your portfolio, say 20 or 30 years, then dollar cost averaging is probably a great way to go. I think some kind of TAA approach, like the one we've discussed, is is just as smart and makes a lot more sense for a lot of people, especially those people who the approach really resonates with. So that might be better for a lot of investors. It is for me, but I do think that a lot of people really have grown to know, like, and trust the dollar cost averaging strategy. So if that's the one that somebody is going to stick with and actually use for the long term, then that's the one they should use. You know? Yeah. Definitely. And uh, yeah, and if they wanted to figure out how to, you know, mi- migrate to TAA tactical, maybe considering s- starting with a small amount and or whatever, but like you said, kind of really discussing that with their financial advisor and, and figure out what's best for them, you know, all pros and cons considered. Sure. Or, you know, get on the wait list for side pocket. We're going to have some great educational resources available. Again, not investment advice, but tools that will help people really get familiar 
yeah. tactical approaches and build that comfort. Because at the end of the day, if you're uncomfortable with the strategy, it's not going to show up when things are going to well, go well. That discomfort is going to show up when things aren't going so hot. So in the case of a TAA approach, it'll be a period like the last few years where a diversified global tactical asset allocation approach has been kind of, you know, tripping along, making a few percent a year, but just getting, you know, left in, left in the dust by a simple 60-40 portfolio. So that's, that's why you really need to build that comfort, that understanding and that confidence. And that really has to be done through, through education so that, you know, whenever, whatever strategy you use, it could be value investing, it could be momentum, it could be tactical, it doesn't, you know, it could be just dollar cost averaging. There are periods where that strategy is very uncomfortable. And so that's why, you know, you have to build that confidence, that understanding and that trust, you know, because someone like a Warren Buffett or, you know, Jerry Parker, the, the famous trend follower, there are periods where, hey, it's tough being Warren Buffett, it's tough being Jerry Parker, but they don't say, oh, I have changed my mind. I, I'm not, you know, Warren <laughs> Buffett style investor anymore. Or, yeah. you know, oh, I'm not going to do trend following anymore. Nope. They they have built this this discipline and to stick with their process and that's what you have to do to get the rewards of the process if you cut and run during inevitable tough periods for whatever that process or strategy is you will not get the rewards from it unfortunately like anything else diets workouts all disciplines you keep switching up strategies you know and it gets it gets it can get a little a little weird yeah for sure and it's just hard to get anywhere you keep spinning your wheels Exactly. So on that note, Dr. Raikin, I'd like to wrap up this call here. It was great having you on. Great informative conversation as usual. I want to share that SidePocket is definitely the best solution for investors interested in consistently growing their portfolios regardless of market conditions, but don't have time to professionally trade. Through tactical asset allocation, SidePocket automatically monitors the markets and actively rebalances investor funds every month into performing assets and out of underperforming ones. Investors can use SidePocket to maximize exposure to gains and protect against crashes. We've launched this weekend. You can now download the app to be added to the waitlist and be onboarded in order of onboarding. So thank you guys very much and thank you as well and look forward to our next session. If you don't have the time to learn how to professionally trade, SidePocket is the best solution for investors interested in consistently growing their portfolios regardless of market conditions. Through tactical asset allocation, SidePocket automatically monitors the markets and actively rebalances investor funds every month into performing assets and out of underperforming ones. This way, investors can use SidePocket to maximize their exposure to gains and protect their portfolio against crashes. SidePocket is live on the App Store. You can go ahead and find it by searching SidePocket Mobile, or you can visit our website, www.sidepocket.com, to get a direct link to the download page of the App Store. Thanks so much for joining today. Looking forward to seeing you again on our next show.